Right, ready? Good. You look comfortable. <laughs> Do you know, I wish all interviews were in comfy seats we just, like this. Do you just drift into these it's chairs, just, don't Honestly, you? it's just wonderful. If you, yeah, it's just great. In comparison to sitting on those awkward stools that you often have, oh, that you just sort of shuffle around and don't feel ever really... The number of times I host events, I do a lot of them and I love doing them. One of the questions, when they go, have you got any questions? I always go, yes. What, what are the seating arrangements? <laughs> because you'll get there and often it's, it's run by fellows who will stand in their suits and then on one of those high chairs on a stage and they'll just perch happily. Whereas if you're a lass in a, in a sort of tight little size eight dress and the skirt's coming up to here, the bottom part, you're, you're <laughs> like, that oh. awkward side So sitting. I always ask if there's any sitting, I'll wear a jumpsuit or trouser suit or something, yeah. So it's do always you, best to ask. Do you do a lot of events as well? Because yeah. I, I mean, I went through, I was trying to work out all of the sports that you cover, covered, channels that you've been across, etc. How much I, prep did you do? That's a, that's a lot. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I, I, I didn't say, one thing that wasn't on there is that you do events as well. Are yeah. you not constantly travelling? Yeah. <laughs> well, not constantly, but I did do two events in one day. A couple of weeks ago, I did one, a breakfast conference, business conference in Wolverhampton, which was absolutely brilliant. It was such a positive story about my home city, like 1.6 billion pound of investment or something. Proper big conference, first thing. And then finished there about 11 and then bombed down to Surrey, literally dropped my car, had a cab waiting outside and then bombed into Covent Garden to host something else for a, a launch of a new sports company. But I love all that. You do it, get a buzz from it. You oh, I love hosting events because I think my husband's a, a project manager at an events company and I know how important it is to him. He's quite sort of super organised and everything bosh bosh bosh. I know how stressful it is for people organising events so I take that on board and try to make it as easy for them as possible and try to really buy into what it is that their event's about and then um, and then I enjoy talking to people. I like talking, I like people so I try and knit all those things together and hopefully deliver for them what they want really for their audience. It's really interesting listening to you talking about that because when we spoke before you said it, I think it was 27, you said, is when you were like, right, okay, yes. I need to make this changing career or mm. movement in your career. Um, but before that, could you have foreseen that this is where you were going to be? No. No, not at all. I think there was something in my mind, I'd always had it at the back of my mind, that I was going to do something interesting with my life, but I didn't know what that involved or how that would transpire or and I think like so many people you grow up you go to school you go to university maybe travel like I did around the world for a year and then you come back and you kind of think something's going to happen you think well hang on I've got a degree I'm going to move to London there's lots of jobs in London and you kind of think something's going to fall into place and Something fell into my lap that wasn't what I wanted particularly. It was through, like many people, join a recruitment agency, go, right, here's my CV, this is what I've done. Can you find me an interesting <laughs> job, please? And they're like, what do you want to do? I don't know, I've got a language degree, something maybe to do with that and people. What did you study? What was your language degree? did German. And I spent okay. a year in Germany as part of that when I was 19, which was massively character building. It was really hard because of the personal situation. I went to university and... I had a few problems with a, a guy who sadly had some mental problems in the uh, in the flat. And I had to really grow up and work out how yeah. to deal with a, a really difficult situation. It was really, really hard, but just what I needed to, to learn a little bit about life and finally move away from my best friends who I'd gone with one of my best friends to university. So it was all a bit easy. Yeah. And I did a degree that I thought I could do already because I spoke German already. <laughs> and I went when I was 17, which was really wow. silly. That's so a huge shot. Yeah, I was always a year above all through school, did my GCSEs at 14 and 15, and then A levels at 17. I went straight to Leeds University, drove up there in my little Fiat Uno, came oh straight back the day after for a nil nil draw with West Ham at home, and then went straight back again. And um, yeah, so I was very, very young doing all that. So my third year, I was 19 when I went, and it was like, Wow. I think that's so true what you said, that you come away from studying and you've been told all the way along, okay, do this next, do this next, do this next. So it's a natural progression in your mind that the next thing will just happen, right? That you, Okay, now it's just get a job. Like, there'll be that job that I've always been told is going to be there or something's going to happen. And then you suddenly sort of come away and you're like, oh, okay, what now? Like, mm. what, what should I actually do next? Yeah, because I had no idea it university and I finished when I was 21 having done a four-year course and I knew I wanted to go traveling so luckily a good friend from school and I went and we had the best time ever and I worked half my way around I actually came back 500 pounds better off than I left because no <laughs> I had this real work ethic and this 
telesales job in um, Sydney that I absolutely loved. And I, I think I would have done it for free. I'm a bit weird. But I found this <laughs> selling um, care flight teddy bears. You get a little nurse one, a pilot bear and all these kind of things. And to the people out in the middle of nowhere, it was like a helicopter rescue service. And I don't know, I just loved doing it. And I just worked really hard and saved and saved and saved. And then travelled around the rest of Australia and then New Zealand and Thailand, having started in Africa. And again, that was really, really character building. So then I came back after that assuming that I'd know by then what I wanted to do. When I was 21, did some temping in the West Midlands and you know, working in a factory in Tipton and for 80 quid a week. And I just thought, ah, I'm not going anywhere with this. What do I do next? It always seemed to be raining, like it is now. We're speaking in October, pouring the rain. And uh, I don't know, so I went to London and started renting a flat. And then you fall into things. So many people with degrees fall into jobs that you're placed in with a recruitment consultancy and then yeah fast forward six years to my 27th birthday and I was like I need to do something different how do I get out of being in a job and a career I don't want to be doing and halfway up a ladder I don't want to be on to then jumping off and getting onto a ladder I do want to be on but not knowing where that lad is going to go to. So I suppose there's two things there. One is that it takes a lot of bravery to do that, which has probably come from a lot of character building you've done previously, but also that ability to hustle and actually just grind and work really hard. Because if you're going to start again or start something fresh, you'll almost feel like you're probably playing catch up. Is that fair? Yeah, I think part of it is also just knowing what you want to do. That's the hardest thing. And I always knew I had this crazy passion for football, sport before that, generally, always sport, and then football when I discovered that. And it became an all-consuming obsession, but I never really had that belief that I could work in football. It didn't really occur to me, because growing up in Wolverhampton, the best will in the world, you didn't see people doing really interesting jobs that you think, oh, I'd like to do that, or my friend's dad does that, or so-and-so does that, or oh, I'll go work experience there. And, and even BBC Midlands was another world away in, in Birmingham. I didn't know how to get into these things. So I didn't really think that I could work in journalism because I didn't see women working in sports journalism and it was never suggested to me. Not that it's anyone's fault, but in those days, you didn't see women working in football and all these fun jobs that you can see now and, and women in football are saying, hey, come and try this and sports journalism courses and all these fun things. There wasn't all that then. So subsequently, it took lots of years of doing something else while still doing the football at weekends, playing every Sunday and watching my team home and away every Saturday all around the country. And it took a nasty nasty knee injury which unfortunately meant I had to spend 10 months on crutches and was told I couldn't play again and it was that really that focused the mind in conjunction with being really unhappy in my job with a boss who really wasn't very nice and having bars on my windows behind my desk and combining that with a World Cup which meant that you can't actually watch every game on TV which was a big shock it was a big shock so you go to university and you travel and you're a student or whatever you could watch whatever you want, yeah. neighbours three times a day if you want. <laughs> and um, sometimes watch one neighbours and go all the way through to the evening one. Um, <laughs> but it was like a, an infringement of my basic human rights not to be able to watch every single World Cup match that was on. And I thought, how do people do this? And <laughs> I remember buying a Casio TV and put it on my Jump desk. On the pocket ones? Yeah, the little pocket Casio oh, TV, the big thick one with the yeah. antenna. <laughs> and I remember putting it on my desk and thinking, and the boss thought he was being really nice by letting us watch an England game. I was like, are you kidding me? Can't we watch all of them? So I just thought, no, this isn't for me, this proper job business. I need to find a way of, I don't know. I didn't know anyone who did this job. I needed to, and I listened to Five Live all the time. I used to have my little radio the thing in my little pocket and go to matches and I'd see see the reporter with the microphone and put the microphone down at half time. I was like, oh, that looks fun. But again, there's that. no link to any of that. I didn't know how to do it. So, so. then what do you do to break through? Like, what do you do? What's the, the, the first thing that you do to go, like, right, I'm getting in there somehow? Mm. You sit at a computer, get on Google, research, 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 and that costs nothing, does yeah. it? There's nothing to stop you researching for your dream job. Nothing to stop you. You shouldn't just sit and assume, well, everybody wants to do that, or oh, everyone wants to be a pilot, or I bet everybody wants to drive an articulated lorry, whatever it is your, your dream, you think, oh, that'd be really cool. You shouldn't always assume that. You just get on the internet and, and look at people who do the job that you're interested in, research their biographies. And that's what I did. I read everybody's biography. And of course, everyone has a different way in. And so I picked up little things. Pete Stevens from BBC London, he did hospital radio. So I looked at my local 
hospital radio, Charing Cross Hospital in Fulham, and I went down there one day a week and went around all the old people and got their um, their requests for music, and then I'd spent the afternoon copying and pasting off the BBC Sport website and writing a little sports report, and then so after I'd done the requests, I'd then do my sports report into the radio. Oh and God, all brilliant. these things cost nothing, and it's experience, and then went to WH Smith and bought Floodlight magazine and um, looked at the... Know, the the evening courses, introduction to print journalism. Thought that will do. 120 quid for a six month course or something every Thursday night for three hours. Basics, what you need to be a journalist. And it was like pen, paper. <laughs> <laughs> it was literally, legit stuff. literally printer. Maybe if you can afford one. Um, it was all the absolute basics. Six months of doing that and a radio production course. I found out about through hospital radio. After that, I was like, right, that's what I want to do. How do I? jump ship from doing this into that you say that like it's a really natural thing though that that's not like that is a level of drive that is not beyond people but that's a level of drive that for most people they would be like oh it might be a bit too much but if everyone did it then well there are like not everyone will be a sports journalist or not everyone will be a pilot or a lorry driver or whatever it is you want to do I think to get into an industry that is fiercely competitive, you have to have that drive. So if you do the research and, and you think, oh, I don't want to work every weekend, or you think, I don't want to miss people's weddings and parties and birthday bashes and I want to have a nice life, then it's not for you. It really isn't. And that's fine. It's not for everybody. But if, like me, you happen to have that inner drive and you think, OK, I've had, I've had quite a lot of bad experiences in my life, a lot of negativity, a lot of unhappiness and misery to a certain extent that's not for now even though this is like a, a couch <laughs> yeah had, get had comfy lot, go on yeah <laughs> i'd had quite a lot of bad times and i think the combination of that and life experience and the the knee injury which was beyond frustrating beyond crutches for 10 months and several operations including major reconstruction and not being able to play the sport i adored um, i used to keep yuppies all the time and you know i could never play as a kid there were no clubs but i think all those things of not being able to do things and being unhappy and really having a massive lack of confidence at school and getting stage fright when doing the, the things on stage you're supposed to do at school. All these things really culminated, I think, at the age of 27 and, and having a horrible time at work as well. Wow, really bad experience there. And I think that really, there was a little fire burning inside me and I was like, I need to, I need to do this. I need to throw everything at it and that means doing what I did, which was resigning from my job, handing in my notice on my flat, sleeping on friends' floors for a few days at a time, taking a carry bag with a duvet and a pillow around London, and, and friends being kind enough to let me stay on their landings. We didn't have spare rooms in those days. It was, you know, everybody rented a room in a flat because we're all new to London. And people were being really kind and letting me do that and sleep on their floors while I do a couple of days' work experience at Haters. Um, up to the West Midlands, BBC WM for a week there, and anyone that would have me really to just let me go and shadow them. And I remember putting my hand up at a press conference at Tottenham when I was just there as work experience, and I was like, I would ask Glenn Hoddle a question as the Spurs manager. And um, and yeah, and it made a big splash in the Daily Mail the next day. And I was Can like, you remember what you asked? It was something about Jason Kumas. He was a key player at the time, and um, I said, Have you ever thought of signing him? And he said, Oh yes, I have actually. And uh, I tried to sign him when I was at. And I don't know, it wasn't a huge story, but it had made a big a big uh, thing the next day. And I thought, yeah, this, just asking questions. It became clear that asking questions about football and about sport was what I wanted to do because I'd listened to everybody else doing it for so many years that I had loads of questions out of nosiness that I wanted to ask people. And, and uh, yeah, I just thought that would be fun. You felt comfortable enough or uh, like moved enough that in that situation, even though you were young, you, or, or not, perhaps <laughs> not like a child, but you a work were, experience, yeah. yeah. But you're relatively inexperienced, I suppose, in that field. You think, okay, I'm going to ask a question because I've been in those press conferences, and it is not the most. Um, it's not an environment that's conducive to the idea of, oh, there's a young person here. Go on, chuck a question up. You know, it, it's quite, it's quite it, intimidating. intimidating. It can be now as well. I mean, you've got that sort of. There's a group, it's, isn't there? Yes, yeah, slightly stressful vibe about a press conference sometimes. It depends who the manager is, of course, and, and the vibe they put across. They can be quite intimidating. It depends who it is. But I do think, I do love journalism. I, I think it's a real privilege to be able to put your hand up and ask a question or have a microphone if you're broadcasting and have that one-to-one. -one. So I think you have a real responsibility there to ask the right questions. 
not to make statements, for goodness sake. It's so frustrating when you really want you really want the manager to cough up some information and then someone makes a statement going, oh, it's a tough game that, wasn't it? And you're like, oh, yeah. oh, come on, tell me something. Um, so, yeah, so that was something I knew that I wanted to do was to ask questions and to get insight out of people, really, and share that with the audience. Because really, I'm that audience at home who wants to know stuff. Do you feel like there was a penny drop moment or do you feel like there was a moment when you're going through this point where you're, you were you said you did hospital radio and you did local BBC radio didn't you as well and and sort of various other kind of local mm. radio stations was there a penny drop where you were like I'm on the right path and this is going where I want it to go yeah all of it right from the start from the first session at hospital radio to the first radio production session where you're working out how to use a mini disc and press play and record and ideally not delete your interview like I did once with Arsene Wenger which was no way oh absolute idiot uh, oh, you know how you live and learn you know the expression you live and learn oh I learned what, did, what happened oh so embarrassed oh it was you know when they were leaving Highbury yeah and Arsene Wenger in those days used to do radio tv press conference all these different ones and he came in and he was in such a good mood and there was just a guy from um Mark Scott, actually, who's now commentating Match of the Day, he's done brilliantly. He was there for local commercial radio. And I said to him before the interview, I said, would you mind sticking your mic into my questions and I'll do both. So we've got backup in case anything goes wrong. He was like, yeah, sure. So I thought, right, I've got it covered. So I used my mini disc recorder and I, he was in great mood. It was just two of us and Arsene and wax lyrical about marble halls and, you know, the, um, the old hybrid, everything that was magical. And it was on behalf of the whole of BBC Radio, really, so local radio and and Five Live. And the, I was such a blinking perfectionist that I'd wanted to take an um or an ah uh or something minor out of one of my questions. And I did that, and I thought, you can edit it on the thing. So I did that. And it said, do you want to delete? And I said, yes. And I meant just the clip, not the whole interview. I deleted the whole interview. And I went, Mark, Thank goodness I asked you to mic up my questions. Can I borrow your audio? And he was like, yeah, sure. I was like, oh, thank God for that. And I uh, sent it down the line. And we were like, what's that hiss on it? And he had one of those old Ewer machines, really old-fashioned one, and it had this awful hiss that was unremovable. And I just felt so bad that I'd let everyone down. And, and I had to wait till the very end and I had to just cap in hand go to Arsene Wenger and said, you know, how you just spent an hour doing all these interviews. And you know how you gave us a lovely interview? Is there any way I can just ask you a couple of really simple questions? And he had a face not quite like thunder, and he really should have told me to clear off, by the way. Um, but he did do another couple, but not oh the waxing God, lyrical. Yeah, not the waxing lyrical as he had been, of course, because he'd just done an hour of interviews yeah, doing yeah. the same thing. But he still gave me a couple of minutes. It just wasn't what I had, the brilliant, brilliant stuff that he'd come out with. So. You do live and learn, don't you? And it's the best way to learn is to make a massive mistake. So. But, but I mean, that I assume then you'll never do that again. Like no. In your mind, you're no. like, I am not going to touch that. Mm. Like, I'll do it in post or whatever. I'll just like, absolutely... It's a life it. lesson as well, isn't it? Don't be too perfectionist that you mess up all the other work that you've done by trying to go too far. But it's, you know, it's something I teach my kids all the time about the mistakes I've made and the lessons I've learned. Hopefully that they, they won't make that. It's just one of those things. But, oh, lesson learned. Can I ask you about getting into comms? When did you get into commentary? And when did that become something that you wanted to do? Had you always wanted to do that? Definitely not always, because, as I mentioned, growing up watching football on TV, not for a nanosecond. Did you never do so you see that thing where you commentated along when you were playing in the garden? Or am I just really tragic and a bit of a loser? I can't really remember, because I didn't really play in the garden. My brother hated football, and I remember buying a football, because we couldn't play, you couldn't play at school, we weren't allowed to play at school. Either of my schools, there was just, no, girls didn't play football, there was no local clubs, there was just, no, girls didn't do football, it's not, it just, not like now, oh my goodness. And so I bought a football um, from a local Bradshaw's sports shop in Codsall, and um, I literally kicked a ball up against the garage door for hours and hours and hours, and taught myself to do keepy-uppies. That, that was it, so I didn't really commentate myself doing keepy-uppies, no. <laughs> and, and I, again, not it a was hugely exciting game, that one. <laughs> not very interesting. It was quite fun doing keepy uppies, right? I love doing that. But um, yeah, it's literally just teaching myself. So I think it's one of those things where you, if you don't have that belief that you could do something, no, it never occurred to me really until the career change. And then I started in local radio. And then I started to have a bit more self belief that actually. If I'm starting right from the very bottom, so hospital radio, evening courses, print journalism, to then doing the postgrad, which I then did after the work experience, and then moved up to Sheffield and started right from scratch there, 
which was the best thing I could have done was a course, giving myself a year to learn the very basics while doing freelancing on the side. I'd written to all the local BBC stations and BBC Leeds let me go in there and start doing the non-league football for them 10-15 minutes a week. It was a wonderful experience in learning how to build contacts from scratch. Um, so it was only really when I started there and they let me carry on freelancing once I'd finished the course, filling in for people on holidays and doing all the sports bulletins for all the regional stations. So you'd sit in this booth all day on your own and do Radio Sheffield, Radio Leeds, Radio Humberside, Radio York Sport and you're writing, which I think is why I moved on quite quickly because there was so much writing and I loved writing and grammar and spelling and so I really enjoyed all that. Um, so did all that and um, then you know, I asked my boss, can I do some reporting at some stage and then one day he said you can go to Bradford Park Avenue against Ashton United in the Unibon Premier League I was like, yes <laughs> and they got stuck on the M62 in my old banger of a Volvo and a massive mobile phone in those days and stressed out that anybody who's been to Leeds and Bradford that M62 and rush out Oh, it was just torture and it was really stressful and then I got there and there was one of those enclosed boxes, press boxes, which yeah. oh, I can't stand for broadcasting. Everyone can hear your every murmur. And miles away from the pitch, there was the, the Horsefall Stadium had a running track around and the light, just an awful, awful setup. And, and the guys who'd been going there for about 60 years in the press box were listening to every word. They could use this blonde bird with a clipboard and a massive mobile phone talking to radio leads. So it was really scary. And then after that, the commentary opportunity came up when another match had gone down and I'd done the early shift on the breakfast show that day, getting up at three o'clock, I think. And then they said, would you like to do commentary of Worksop Town, M Wakefield and Emily against Worksop Town? I was like, yeah. I was like, right, straight on the internet, do some research. And there wasn't really any information on the internet on non-league football in those days. And um, yeah, that was really hard. And I got there and they managed to get me a summariser. So the captain was injured. And I just remember the commentary position being really low down in the corner at the back of the stand. And the players were way over there. And they all were about six foot with short, dark hair. And they all looked identical. And trying to identify them was <gasps> so hard. Were you, were you not nervous? Like you're going into this environment where you're like, this is not the most natural thing in the world. And then you're surrounded by people who've done it for 40, 50 years. Yeah, that wasn't it. I think commentary was really hard because it wasn't. I think if we all went to Liverpool, Man United, it'd actually be a piece of cake because any football fan worth, worth a salt would go, yeah, that's Rashford and that's Jordan Henderson. And you even know the numbers probably from watching it. But no, doing non-league football where you've no idea what any of them look like and having no time to prep as well <laughs> was yeah. really hard. But hey, it's one of these experiences, one of these life experiences I was talking about, which makes you stronger and you, you think, OK, I'm probably never going to do anything as hard as that again until probably my first commentary for national radio, which is 2005, the Women's European Championship, the Etihad, England, Finland. Again, really hard because I hadn't seen any of the Finnish players before and they all had blonde ponytails, which is... <laughs> but um, yeah, you've just got to you just got to get through the one thing, take what you can out of it, learn from it and go, I've done it once so I can do it again and then make sure you get better next time and listen back if you can, which I'm terrible at, but cringe. But get better, get advice, learn, move on, learn, move on, learn, move on, do the next thing, do the next thing, diversify different sports, different output, different types of media, writing, everything. Don't just go, right, I want to be a football commentator on Match of the Day. No, do print, do online, do radio, do match reports, do everything before anyone gives you a chance. Do it all. You've all got your technology. You can borrow your mum's mobile phone. Anyone can have a go. So what year did Match of the Day come? So it was 2005 when you did the the European Champs. Yeah. And then what year was Match of the Day? 2007. Okay. So I'd been doing Premier League commentaries for a couple of years, but it was only then in 2007 that I realised the power of television because I thought, well, I've been doing radio commentary for years, so I didn't think it was that earth-shattering a thing in the grand scheme of life to be asked to do one commentary of kind of lower-rung match, quarter to midnight, eight and a half minutes. Of Initially, it was going to be Watford Man City, and they changed the outside broadcast which they share with Sky, anyway, a technical thing. And they switched me to Fulham Blackburn. So I, I really didn't think it would be the biggest deal. I did think, mm, people might clock that I'm not a geezer. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they'll clock it after 10 pints at midnight and go, 
that bird sound a bit different to what we normally have? It's a bird. <laughs> oh my god, I don't mind that. But I thought I just hope nobody knows in advance. And yeah. And and people did know in advance. Yeah. And then people reacted in like a really crap way. Yeah. And what I liked that you said before, and you, I think I've seen you say this a couple of times, but you, I don't know. I don't know what, what the right way of saying this, but you just sort of took doing it in stride. That you, you had you'd done all of these kind of shows before. You commentated on games before. You'd obviously had people critique your performance before. It's way more intense. But you said to us before when we did an article with you that it was a case of right, crack on, like let's keep moving forward. Mm. Like as in these people don't actually have any real right to critique your performance because I don't know anything more than, than you do. You've oh, worked hard to be... I can critique it. Of course they can. Once I've done it, the, the issue I had was that it was on the Tuesday, unfortunately, that the word escaped into a newspaper that I would be doing it before the Saturday. So that was the hardest bit. I didn't mind afterwards. If anybody wants to go, oh, she was rubbish. No problem with that. Gosh, they're probably right. Absolutely entitled to their opinion. No problem with that. The problem I had was that it really affected my build-up and preparation, right. which for me, preparation is everything. And um, you ask any commentator, actually, if they're about to do a big game or their first game. And don't forget, TV is so different to radio. And doing... TV highlights for an eight and a half minute edit is completely different to doing a full 90 minutes with a summariser. Yeah, can you explain the difference there? Because yes. I suppose for most people, when they watch Match of the Day, they would just think, oh, there's someone commentating on 90 minutes of football and they've just mm. taken the best bit. But it's not that we, at all, is well, it? It is that. But for radio commentary, the risk of stating the obvious, it's live. So what you're doing is going out at a certain time in the day and you're welcome, joining us, blah, blah. It's pouring down with rain and with me is former Spurs striker, blah, 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 whatever it is. And it's very natural, it's very, and they kick off, the teams are playing from right to left, and so-and-so in the white shirts and the blue shorts. And So you're describing everything for radio, and you're commentating on pretty much everything that's happening, and then you're throwing over to the racing, and you're throwing over to the rugby league, or the whatever else. And then you do match of the day, you don't really know, you've got a microphone, it's you, you've got two screens, you're thinking, don't state the obvious, don't tell people what they can see. Very different doing it for TV for starters because you're, people can see where the ball is, you have to really analyse and you don't have a summariser. So you're not asking, oh, should that have been a red card? You're giving your opinion but you've also got to get the balance between letting people at home make up their mind whilst giving an opinion of sorts. And it's a different rhythm and really I think if you've never ever done it before, you need a few really to get into a rhythm, but of course you don't get that opportunity the first time. You just hope nobody really notices it's your first time. And it just was the way it was. And there's no point in bleating and going, oh, woe is me, everyone was staring at me and all the pressure of the world. Yes, I felt pressure, being honest, of course I did. And I didn't enjoy it. And it was crazy, crazy times. And I felt very isolated, very lonely, a little bit sick, um, bent double on the gantry for the second half because I hadn't eaten for three days and I hadn't slept for three nights because of the pressure of it all being on front page of national newspapers. And I'm not going to pretend or lie to you and say, oh yeah, I just cracked on. It was a real mental challenge. It was a real test of character, test of nerve. And the frustrating thing for me looking back was that I didn't really start my prep for it until 11pm the night before, which is when I should so have been... Nervous. Because my phone never stopped. Wow. For three days, my phone did not stop. And my emails, and I remember having Yahoo Messenger on my phone, and it was going, making that little noise going... <laughs> every time I got a new email. And it was from the various people I'd known over the years in local radio. And the BBC and elsewhere going, oh, hi, Jackie, my friend of so-and-so, could we interview you for the South Wales Echo or the whatever, the various different newspapers and radio stations. And talk about living and learning. I made such a mistake of being super polite to everybody and replying to every message and explaining in full why I was going to politely decline every interview because I didn't want to be the story. I didn't want to add fuel to the fire. I just wanted to be a journalist like everybody else. Silly, silly, silly me. I should have switched everything off and just done my prep. That's what I should have done. And instead, I was trying to do the right thing, what I thought was the right thing. And of course, I didn't do any prep. My head was completely full. I was speaking to people all day, bosses, other commentators, kindly phoning me up and saying, wow, this is crazy. And 
yeah, it was completely bonkers. But do you mind? somebody had to be the first, didn't they? Somebody, somebody always has to be the first to do something. And I just hope that having done that now, I'm just really relieved that the other women doing it could just get on with it. And that for me is absolutely brilliant. And it makes that time really worthwhile, I think. Do you mind the fact that that moment was what it was? Do you mind the fact that you, you sort of like, you look back and you won't remember that? Uh, oh, that was incredible that I got to see that. <laughs> you remember and you think, God, I was really like, I felt really uncomfortable. Or like you said, are you kind of like, maybe it's for the best? Maybe it's helped others and you can see like a, a positivity in it? Yeah, I, I didn't enjoy it. I'll be completely honest, it wasn't, I never wanted to be the centre of attention. I didn't want to be the story. I think people now would pay gazillions for that kind of profile. People always talk about profile. I don't want any profile. I turned down various celebrity programmes after that, which my bosses said I was mad to do. But I was like, I don't want to be the story. I'm a journalist. I want to tell the story. I don't want cameras focusing on me in that commentary box when I had a microphone and I, I tried not to look down. And then at one point I went like that. And there, there are loads of photos now of me going like that for the first <laughs> time because I, they were going, snap, snap, snap. I was like, this is a Premier League match. They should be facing that way. And, and the craziest moment was when the referee, Graham Pohl, turned around on the pitch about to start a Premier League match, which was going live around the world. And he turned around and looked up at the gantry and he went, good luck. Cheers, mate. And I was just like, and I still had a photographer on the gantry with me all this time, again, talking about living and learning. Again, I should have said, um, you okay to leave at quarter two because I'll need to really focus on picking out players and thinking of my intro and my team news. And I'd never done this before. I didn't know how long exactly you're supposed to do the team news over which type of pictures. Because all my research time in the preceding days, which I thought I was going to go back and study all the other match of the days on that I'd recorded, all that time vanished. So I didn't have any of that prep time. So it really was just a case of getting through it without fainting or something. <laughs> falling over and um, and just trying to do the best job I could. It certainly really was not my best. And getting through it and living to fight another day. And Have you been able to carry that with you though? Have you been able to go now? I can imagine that most things must feel like a bit of a doddle in comparison to that. Great life experience. Absolutely, talk about character building. Absolutely brilliant life experience. Really hard, didn't enjoy it. Wouldn't wish it on anyone to be honest. Just because that level of scrutiny when it really is you, I was single at the time, I was living on my own at the time. It was very lonely, it was very isolating. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have anyone advising me really as to how to handle it. I didn't know. I just got through it the best I could, which is why I'm really big now on trying to help mentor other women coming through and say, yes, you can do this and yes, you can do that. And, and phone me, I'm always giving them my number. Anyone coming through, I'm like, here's my number. Just call me if you ever want to talk about anything, whether you're thinking of commentary or whether it's presenting or anything to do with sports broadcasting or if you feel you're not sure how to handle a situation or you're being asked to do stuff and you, you don't know whether you should say yes or no. And I try to be a sounding board if anybody needs it because that experience, hopefully I could put to good use now. Do you um, still listen to feedback on your comms? Do you still ask for, or, or on your presenter, do you still ask people for feedback? Yes. So oh, I get it whether I want it or not for my <laughs> husband, not that he's great at watching that. Is, is he your number one source of feedback? He's not a big one for watching. I need to get on a cookery programme or something for him to actually watch it. <laughs> All he watches is cookery programmes and home improvement programmes. Does my head in. <laughs> Honestly, we're, we're such a role reversal. We'll put the kids to bed or I'll finish putting them to bed. He'll be cooking downstairs and, um, and then I'll come down and put the kids to bed and then he's done dinner, which is great because I can't cook. And then he'll watch cookery <laughs> programmes and I'll sit down and I'll have the obligatory kind of, how was your day? How was your day? Yeah. Then I'll go, you don't want to watch a match, do you? And he's like, Nah, do you mind? And he's got MasterChef or Bake Off or something on it. He sits and watches that or home home improvement programmes and I have to go and watch football and darts in the lounge. That's what yeah, we do. You have to go to the other room. Every single night. We don't watch <laughs> anything together. It's terrible. There's not not a meet in the middle anywhere. Yes. Um what do we there's one programme we loved to watch together. Um Killing Eve. Oh, we love Very that. Very good. And Bodyguard, love that. Oh, okay, cool. We do need to make more time to watch stuff together. Yeah, and I mean, there's enough in and around those kind of concepts that you, there's that other series about that you could mm. like lean on. Yeah. I sort of really got into the whole like bodyguard thing. Oh, it was yes. it was one of the only things where I would be like, okay, it's on at this time. 
I'm sitting down. And Line moving. of Duty as well. That's another one. Very oh, good. Very, yeah, very good. We actually good. bonded over that. It was quite good to actually have stuff to talk about apart from kids and school pickups and who's doing what. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find yourself being like constantly in football? Do you know yeah, what I mean by that? Yeah. Is in that you actually can't ever remove yourself? Yeah. Yes, but then I don't know where the line is between work and play. That line was blurred a long time ago. And I think the upsides of the job, or sometimes the downsides, is that I literally don't switch off, really, from football. So if I'm at home, I'll either have a podcast in my ear or my AirPod going around the house, putting the washing away and kids, kids' dinner or whatever, uh, listening to football or sport in general. And then after the kids go down, then there's virtually always a match on that I want to watch. So then I'll watch that in the evening and I was thinking, hang on, I really need to diversify my interests a bit. <laughs> um, luckily, Motherland is on at the moment, which is, oh, about a stressed out working mum who's trying to juggle everything. Oh, hilarious and I love it. It's a bit close to home. Um, but, but yeah. Can I pick your brain to that now? I had like a couple of other things that I wanted to ask you, but the, the, the fact that you were six months pregnant when you did your first presenting role, that must have yeah. been um, relatively stressful, given that you're Weird, juggling yeah. other stuff as well at the same time? Yeah, it was quite strange because probably most presenters have started earlier and, and so I started later, probably because I didn't want to do TV, no interest in TV. And when I changed career, it was radio sport I wanted to do um, and match reporting and match updates and commentary. That's what I was keen on doing. And I thought TV looked a bit too much like a faff, all the makeup and hair and... You know, if I did, as part of my postgrad course, half of that was TV and half was radio, and most of us wanted to do radio on that course. And I thought the TV stuff was such a pain with editing. It would take you two or three days to film a minute and a half of TV, and wow, that wasn't really for me. <laughs> um, but then I did get a chance when we were at TV Centre at the BBC, and, and you had News Channel just across the desk from Five Live, and so they'd asked me a few times actually, do you want to do shifts? Do you want to do shifts? And I was sort of freelance, but on contract. Uh, so I said, okay, I did a bit of that. And then one thing led to another that I was asked to do the women's football presenting. And I'd been doing it for radio for years. So I just did both really. And then I ended up doing uh, more women's football. And then it came from there. I can't really remember too much about that. And then being a mum, it actually worked well doing TV um, because of the nature of it. Frankly, it pays more, so you don't have to work quite as many shifts. And also, the type of prep is, is a bit less, uh, bit less intense. So it's more yeah. general. Uh, and also, a big thing I really enjoyed about TV, which I hadn't considered before, is that you're part of a team. And I'm very much a people person and a team player. And I love talking to the runner and the um, the sound man and the floor manager and the producer and collaborating about stories on so the women's football show. I love going in there armed full of ideas or phoning them up in the week going, why don't we talk to so-and-so? Why don't we get Kelly Simmons on to answer this? Or why don't we do this and that? Or I've heard so-and-so's happening. Let's make sure we get that into our chat. So I love working with people, whereas in radio and in commentary, trust me and my computer and my statistics all week and then I'd drive in my little car and I'd sit in a box on my own and then I'd drive home or I'd stay over and it was all quite, quite solitary. solitary. Yeah, so that's why I quite enjoyed doing TV. But um, but how do you manage it when you, you've just had a little one? That, that must be quite difficult coming away from the idea of having family and home or were you quite excited to also have that at the same time? Yeah, again, pros and cons with everything, but I'm very much a glass half full person. So I found it that, because I've got lots of mums who still wanted to work, but would have to do set hours or would have to go back after either three months or a year. And of course it's great, they get paid for a year or paid, well, I didn't get any maternity pay. Um, I didn't, yeah. So if I didn't earn, if I didn't work, I didn't earn. And that's still the case now. So I've never, got paid for a day I've not done ever in this business. So I don't think I've ever missed a shift. I think I was vomiting really quite horrendously just before going on air with the women's football show and I still did it. And I was just thinking, God, I was looking absolutely fright and I was so sick, but yeah, I've never missed anything. So even when I had my second child, I still did the women's football show after five weeks after cesarean of my second with the plan being that he would come and sit in the green room and I'd feed him and then go in. And my husband went, oh, no, no, I'll keep him at home. You go and do the show. I was like, all right, cheers for that. So as long as you're all right, babe, as long as you're all right. 
I always had to look after my husband to make sure he was okay. <coughs> so he kept the baby and the toddler at home, and I'd go and do the women's football show. I'd be in the toilet pumping my booby while <laughs> scoffing a panini that um, Shelley Alexander had kindly bought me. Um, yeah, and then a week later, drove up to Milton Keynes. So six weeks after a cesarean, drove up to Milton Keynes and um, to present the women's world, no, women's FA Cup final. Because I thought, well, I could still do that. I'll take the baby with me and no problem, feed the baby in between. It's all good mentally, I was fine, baby was cool. Had some problems feeding, that was blinking hard work, that didn't go very well. Um, again, my husband went, no, I'll keep the baby at home, you go and do the cup final. So, yeah, that was a bit of a challenge. <laughs> I learned from that mistake, but there's no point in learning because I'm not going to have any more children, that's for sure. <laughs> so I can maybe learn for somebody else. I tell other potential mums in our industry, don't do anything silly like present an FA Cup final six weeks after a cesarean without having a baby with you. Because again, the baby's fine. He slept all day. I left him the breast milk. I ended up having to pump... Are there any policemen watching this? I ended up having to pump when I should not have been pumping. Let's just... Let's not admit to committing any crimes. Because <laughs> um, I was running a little bit late. But yeah, so I got to um, <laughs> I got to Milton Keynes ground, and again got the makeup chair. Had to keep pumping, and I remember Natasha Dowie was the pundit, and I said, "Do you mind if I pump?" And she thought I meant blow off. <laughs> I went, no, no, I've I've had a baby. I need to I need to, I need to um, express some milk. And uh, anyway, I carried on doing this. Did the show. I was praying there was going to be no extra time. Thank goodness there wasn't, because my boobies were absolutely killing me at this point. <laughs> and and so I'd express all this milk, putting it in the fridge. I was thinking this baby's going to get a lot of gorgeous <laughs> milk when I get home. I was filling up this bottle. And uh, the cameraman's getting a bit uneasy at this point. Um, and I put it. <laughs> put it in the fridge and at the end pumped more milk I was like, oh absolute agony absolute agony and I thought well at least I've got all this lovely milk I went to get it from the fridge I was like oh it's a bit warm the makeup artist had unplugged the fridge oh, for the no. hair straighteners and the milk had got warm and I had to chuck it all down the sink oh my god were you not at, like what do you do in that situation I could have cried <laughs> I, I might have cried I was absolutely devastated I had I was really struggling with feeding as well. It, this was not coming easily to me. And I was absolutely devastated. So baby was fine again. It was all good and he just slept all day. And But I was so devastated and um, yeah. And emotionally I was fine and he was fine, but it was just a silly thing to do. Well, yeah, I should have either taken the baby with me or just not done these shows for a few weeks or months. It wouldn't have killed me. But you didn't have to go on screen. Like, you didn't have to go... Yeah, like, looking pretty rough, actually, because I just had a baby, but... But yeah. do you... you know, I mean... Do, I wanted to do it. I, I right, love okay. my work. And it wasn't... As people watching this will probably think, oh, she's worried someone else is going to take her place. It really wasn't that. I just loved my job and felt I could do it fine. It really was simple as that. And, and I could do it fine. I was... I was fine. A baby was fine. But it was just unnecessary stress, really. Sure. And Yeah, we should have... I should have really put my foot down and my husband bringing the kids so as we'd arranged. <laughs> but I wanted him to be okay. I wanted him to be okay. We'll, we'll clip that up so you can, you can share it with him. He'll <laughs> <laughs> well, kill me. But that's quite a quick time to come back. So it really was that I just love my job. I just want to get back into it because... Well, it was a Women's FA Cup final, yeah. I loved doing that and I, I was really keen for it to be at Milton Keynes. I was a big fan of the venue. I still am. We do the darts there for ITV. Love it. It's great. The hotel and everything. I think it's a great venue and um, yeah, but I, I thought it'd be fine. And it was fine. It was just unnecessarily stressful with the feeding and I didn't really think that through and I should have done. Having already had a baby, I should have known. But because I planned to take the baby with me, I thought it'd be fine. Lots of mums in our industry do do this and they take the baby with them and, and it all works. But um, yeah. Do you Very think, easy ways of doing a job. Do you think, <laughs> do you, do you think people... Um, I don't want to say give enough credit. Do you think people make allowances in any way? Or would you not want people to make any allowances for the fact that you've got mums that are, are trying to continue in exactly the same way that they did before they had kids and then suddenly they've got a, a, an extra responsibility as well as some... Having children just... It takes time, right? You, you, you need time. I think it's support. I think if you need that support and you ask for it, then, then great. But also there are dads juggling. It's not just about mums. Yes, we physically give birth, maybe the hormones, and we've got to be careful with postnatal depression and that kind of thing, which people sadly really do suffer from. But 
there are a lot of dads. I mean, working at Sky, there's a guy that's just come back having taken six months paternity because his other half didn't get that in her job. And that's totally normal now, and I love that. So if that's what you as a couple decide, then great. And I think also now there are youngish dads in executive roles who know how hard it is, who haven't necessarily always had women at home, maybe with nannies who did all the work, which they can maybe not always be the most understanding of bosses. But I think mostly now, you'll have a boss who, who's got a dash to do the school run. And that's great. So I think our having more diverse workforces in terms of sharing out the roles at home does make it easier. Uh, but I think, um, I don't really want to make the point that you can be a mum and do this job and other difficult jobs. And I think, yes, understanding at work is absolutely huge. Um, but I think it's up to us as well to make that decision that if we choose that, yes, I do want to go and and do a show after five or six weeks. Bear in mind, I wasn't going back full time. People think of going back to work as you're going back. No, 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 I was going back to my kids for, I do the school run every day, virtually every day, um, and pick up most days. So I can do that and lots of people can't because of the craziness of the randomness of the, the shifts I do. So it is swings and roundabouts, but I think we just need to support each other, back ourselves, back each other and help each other because I've got loads of advice for any new mums in terms of childcare because that's the hardest thing and, and I, I've found my way around it by uh, using my journalism skills of research and talking to other mums and finding out who who might want to become a childminder so now I pay friends of of my kids mums to have the children it works brilliantly for all of us and you don't have the guilt the kids are happy works really well ad hoc Let's come back to the Women's FA Cup final. So that would have been not, I assume, not your first Women's FA Cup final? No. This was when Max was born in 2014. Cool. And and, and I suppose at the moment, um, women's football has surged up to a trajectory that people kind of 10, 15 years ago wouldn't have imagined possible. Maybe longer than that. 20 years ago, people would have looked and been like, I hope that we get there but right now I can't see it. Um, and uh, people often talk about players and they talk about players that were trailblazers or pioneers or um, paved the way so that other players could kind of have that career. But there are lots of people in that period also doing the work from an infrastructure point of view of which you were a very important part. And um, I just wondered if you could share kind of um, at what point you sort of felt that you needed to be a voice or you needed to be someone that was driving that conversation forward particularly within the kind of media side of things right because it when people get to a point where they could women could play football more then it wasn't necessarily the infrastructure behind it was there where you could actually get the message out mm, yeah that's something I, I got involved with because I felt passionate about it I felt very passionately about it's weird when people say, oh, you're in, really into women's football. I'm like, no, nah, I'm into football, but women play too and haven't had the opportunities that men have had and haven't had the professionalism and the opportunity to play from a young age from school and, and all the rest. So I felt strongly that this was nuts. It was absolutely nuts. And, and when I started covering the women's game in 2004 for the BBC, there was no interest really in publicising the women's game or covering it. Nobody, I don't want to drop people in it, badmouth anybody, but there wasn't a great deal of demand, shall we say, for coverage from, yeah, I kind of had to ask quite a lot to go to matches or, or to cover certain games or, or tell them matches were on. We're talking England games here, we're not talking domestic. Um, and. I just felt this was bonkers and it was like pushing an elephant up the stairs in that I felt that there was so much potential for the women's game. They were part-time in those days, they had full-time jobs or were coaching in the day and then would train a couple of nights a week and so of course the standard wasn't what it is now but that's not their fault. Of course. You know, you ask Rachel Brown Finnis, probably the best known women's goalkeeper in this country, how much goalkeeper specific training she had when she was younger and she'll probably tell you none until she was much older so how on earth could she possibly have been the best virtual version of Rachel Brown that she could have been she couldn't and it was only later she got that kind of coaching and, and it's nuts really so I felt very passionately that people of my generation couldn't play what about that lost generation of women 
who could have been something, who could have been professional, who could have played at the top of their game, who maybe never even kicked a ball, but could have been an outstanding player. But because they were never given a ball, they were maybe given a doll, maybe they had a sister and not a brother. And now, if I'm fascinated by this, but I think somebody should do a survey of the top international women's players in the world and how many of them have got brothers. Because the number of them that say they only took it up because they had a brother playing or the brother was at a class and they did it. Um, so that was then, this is now, and back then we had to try and drive the game forward. So I just used every opportunity I could and every contact I had, got on well with people at the FA um, because I knew they were good people there who wanted to drive the game forward. They had someone called Rachel Pavlo, who has done so much work behind the scenes. Um, Kelly Simmons, who people know about. Other people there who were trying to drive the game forwards. Um, Hope Powell, to a certain extent, was she had the, you know, the front office job, if you like. Didn't have anything like the 50-something staff members that Phil Neville's got now. None of that. I mean, if they had a physio, they were lucky. and. Kelly Smith, what could she have been if she'd been able to play professionally in this country and not had to go to America, which she didn't want to do. She was a home bird. She wanted to stay here. So it was really frustrating. So I just did anything that I could to get the message out there. And of course, the advent of social media has been huge. And, and I've found, I found myself trying to spread the word as much as possible and presenting the women's football show and putting lines out there. Whenever there were major tournaments, I would use Twitter as a means of really reaching out to my journalism colleagues. And I'd actually write tweets in top lines, as we call it in, in, in journalism. I'd write tweets in top lines. So I'd try and get the top line in and say, this is what's happening. And this interview's coming next. I'd almost try and spoon feed journalists and sports editors to try to get them interested in covering the game and trying to get the story in their paper through them seeing it on Twitter and going, we should be watching this Women's World Cup, like the, the Canada one that we were covering, which was overnight. So it was, it was kind of difficult to get people to watch. But some of the games were late at night. And, uh, and I, just, I just felt a sort of responsibility. And I worked all around the clock during that World Cup. I, I didn't really see my kids for that World Cup, even though we were only based in, in West London and, and not in Canada. I didn't really go home very much. I spent all day researching and sending tweets and researching and sending tweets and trying to get people interested in the coverage and trying to get people to write about the Women's World Cup, to try and get the word out there that this is what was happening, England were doing well, and these were the news lines, without it being, oh, aren't they doing well, bless them. These are the news lines of, of why you should be covering the women's tournament. And um, <clears throat> yeah, it was, it was pretty upsetting to have to stop covering the women's game for the BBC sometime after that, but <clears throat> that's life and you move on. Do you miss it? Do you miss um, covering the women's game in the same way? Yeah, I'm really passionate about it. I love the women's game. I still watch it, still um, follow it. Yeah, go to matches at my local ground, which is Kings Meadow in Kingston, where Chelsea play. Um, but but yeah, I'm really busy with other stuff as well. So it's not like I'm sitting at home twiddling my thumbs thinking, I wish I was working today. But no, I mean, I covered the Women's World Cup for the host broadcaster this summer, which was amazing. And doing commentary of seven matches, I think it was, in Wren. And that was a brilliant experience. And seeing the way the women's game has um, has grown, it's uh, it's fantastic. But yeah, I do get a little bit frustrated. But um, yeah, hopefully I'll carry on working in it in some other capacity. We'll see. Um, can I ask you greatest hits? Let's go. Like, if you look back, what is the games that you look at, or what are the career moments that you go like, oh, that was a good day? <laughs> and I couldn't get like so we, we spoke to John Murray and John Murray would refuse he refused to commit <laughs> on any game. Oh he's so professional. But I know, like I know when I look back at games I meant to go and do the Champions League final. I was like, cover the Champions League final. That's to me as if you told eleven year old me you'll go and see Tottenham <laughs> in the Champions League final, that's like amazing. So I I know looking back, watching England win on penalties against Colombia. My first tournament was Euro ninety six, so I know how crap it is to watch England lose a penalty <laughs> shootout. So see us win one was like a, a highlight. So are there any for you that you think, I loved covering that game, or I loved that job, or I loved that moment? Loads. I'm so lucky, really, on that front. Really lucky, I think. The one that stands out was commentating on the Men's World Cup in 2010 in South Africa. So I think travelling around with Graham Taylor in a minibus. Was he your co-commentator? He was for some of the games. It varied, but he was brilliant. He's somebody I'd queued up as a teenager to, 
So welcome to my club late at night at the Burnden Park in Bolton. Um, I queued up for about an hour waiting for him to, just so I could say good luck to him like a sado. And um, yeah, so to be commentating with him in my mum's country of her birth in South Africa, in Cape Town, which was just, oh, it's such a beautiful city. It's so beautiful with, with Table Mountain, which I climbed up as a, as a traveller after my degree. And uh, there, commentating with Graham Taylor with Mark, Lawrence and just in front and it was the Netherlands against Cameroon which was so that was a real buzz I think all those games in that World Cup were just mind-blowing I just couldn't believe I was commentating for the BBC at a World Cup that was crazy and I think the last men's World Cup as well in Russia was just brilliant and the whole thing it was much less intense because I was presenting and also pitch side so it was less intense in terms of prep so in South Africa with commentary for radios flights every day and the internet was just horrendous the wi-fi oh my goodness there just wasn't any hardly so updating the prep that I'd done before I left was really hard but I think in uh, Russia it was a bit different there's a lot more hanging out with um, my husband's childhood heroes which was funny while he was at home with the kids <laughs> doing the school run every day and I was hanging out with Roy Keane and paying for the FA Cup final isn't he that's what it Brian is gigs and all his Man United <laughs> heroes and they they were brilliant to work with it was just I just love talking football with them and going for dinner with them just, yeah just talking football which is kind of my favorite pastime really so that was a buzz and going just going to World Cup matches pitch side the World Cup final it's pretty cool all those England games the Columbia game I was at for ITV absolutely brilliant ITV looked after us so well they're just great people to work for really really are really good team and just all of that was just fantastic. Euros with ITV as well. Oh, really lucky to have, and I think every Premier League, I think pretty much every game I go to, I just love the fact that this is my work. And I think it really helps having had other jobs and particularly other jobs I didn't like. I've done all sorts of jobs working in factories and putting a washer on a machine and taking a washer off a machine for a whole summer in Germany with a load of people who didn't speak German, English or French. So I, I couldn't communicate with anyone for a summer. So, and staring at a massive clock, which got bigger Every year in my memory, this clock gets bigger and I just looked at it another eight hours to go. And I think having done all those jobs and various things that were proper, proper hard work for really bad pay, I think you really appreciate when you're doing something that frankly is, doesn't feel like work. Um, so I'm really, really appreciative and grateful for any, any of those things. And is there one thing that you still look at and go, oh, one day? Yeah. What, what is the number one? I don't really have a number one. I really don't, but there are certain shows that I would love to work <laughs> on. Oh Come really say, on, you've got to now. Which ones. <laughs> I can't say which one. No, I think, to be honest, presenting football matches, I love, I love asking questions. I love getting insight out of people who know about these things. I love working with the likes of Glenn Hoddle, who, his tactical brain is just incredible. If you've ever had the chance to talk football with Glenn Hoddle, you'll be like, oh my goodness, this guy, seriously, is on another level. Um, so I think getting information out of people, so presenting shows, also commentary, I still there's a, you know, even though it's really hard to fit into a busy schedule, it is because I take prep so seriously and I really want to do it properly, but that is something I love doing and going back to it this summer was fantastic, so, so that, but there's certainly some um, football shows. And other sports as well. I love covering other sports, Radio 4 and, and Sky Sports News as well. So um, just lots of things. I think as long as I'm, my brain's engaged and I'm asking people questions and telling people at home things that they didn't already know, that's really the essence of what I enjoy. I thought there might be a Wolves one in there, maybe, <gasps> commentating on them somewhere. Well, funny you should say that. I did always have this thing about coming, commentating on Wolves for Match of the Day. And unfortunately, when I was doing Match of the Day, they weren't in the Premier League. And I didn't get to do them for the Football League show when I did that. So there probably is an element of that, maybe in the Europa League. If, yeah. anybody, if anybody wants to send me to watch Wolves in the Europa Absolutely. League, that would be just fine. And by the way, I'm able to be entirely impartial. I've done it so many times. I've done, <laughs> I've done Wolves West Brom commentary on Five Live, not a problem. You just flick a switch in your brain and microphone, headphones, zero allegiance, 100% truth. Wow, because yeah. that is probably one of the, I think that's probably one of the biggest things that comes up. When you say you're going to speak to a commentator, they want to know who they support. Mm. And, and then, they, then they're like, oh, you don't commentate in the same way. But for you, it's quite mm. easy. And I never used to admit 
to supporting the team, I always kept that very quiet. But then actually with the advent of social media and not commentating for a few years, it became really hard. And even though I, I only really talk about it when it's brought up like this, I don't actually spout forth on social media as such. <laughs> it's more in response to stuff or I might retweet a bit more about one club than the other. But genuinely, when it comes to actually working on them and I report on them, I did the Chelsea Wolves game the other day and I got a tweet going, hang on a minute, thought you were supposed to be a Wolves fan. You sounded too happy when Chelsea scored. Thank you very much. Job done. Done my it was job a great very goal. well. <laughs> no emotion. Honestly, no emotion when you've got headphones on and microphone in hand. That's for when you're a fan. Emotions for when you're a fan. When you're on a match day and you're working, not a problem completely down the line. Okay. It, it's actually much easier than it sounds. Fingers crossed, Europa League final this year. Trajectory takes us there <laughs> and you're doing the comp. Thank you so, so much. You've been absolutely amazing. And like some stories that I definitely didn't think we were going to come up. That's <laughs> yeah, absolutely magic. I'm speeding on the M1. There you go. Oh, no, I've admitted it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank I was you trying so not much, to admit Jackie. it. <laughs>